Everybody say, hallelujah. It's time, we, hey, we've continued to be contagious. Matthew chapter 5, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, after Jesus told us that we're supposed to be happy. How many of you know disciples are supposed to be happy? Look around and make sure everybody's smiling. If they're not smiling, lay hands on them suddenly or forcefully. Amen. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you ought to have the joy, joy, joy in your soul. Amen. Don't make me tell a joke to make you laugh in the house. Hallelujah. I ought to just be happy. And he said, happy, blessed, very happy. The next thing he said after he told us about how our attitude ought to be through life, regardless of the circumstances. How many of you know the joy of the Lord uh, ought to be real in us regardless of the circumstances? Amen. You ever heard anybody say, how you doing? Oh, pretty good, I guess, under the... I'm not living under the circumstances. I'm seated with Christ in heavenly places. Could have get a better amen. amen. By the way, let me just jump ahead and say I'm pretty excited about this morning. So uh, uh, I'm trying to be patient, but I'm ex- I, I, I really think I think I might preach good today. <laughs> pretty excited about it. So after he said that, he said, "Let me tell you who you are as a disciple. You are what? You are you are salt, and you are." Light. What he's saying is, as, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, your new identity as a believer is, is one of contagious. You are, your identity as a Christian is to be contagious with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. Again, everybody go, hallelujah. It's time we spread it around a little bit. This is our identity. We are contagious Christians. And now, the next thing I want you to see before I share with you what I'm all excited about is the reality that Jesus reminded us right after he said, you're salt and light. His big reminder, his big concern was he reminded us that if you're not careful, you can become ineffective. He said, if the salt loses its flavor, it's good for nothing. Man, if I started preaching about good for nothing, if you don't do this, you're good for nothing. We'd all get emotionally scarred. But Jesus said, if you don't, if you lose your impact, if you don't, if, if you don't gather in and understand and, and begin to identify with who you are as a Christian, as, as someone who is salt and light, then you become ineffective and you're not doing anybody any good. How many of you want to make a difference in the world? I don't want to make a dent. I want to make a difference. All the salt and light say Amen. And so his concern was that we become ineffective. Now, this morning, I'm going to kind of take that thought with you a little bit. And I'm going to talk to you about six big, ugly, internal enemies of contagious Christianity. There, I can't write all that on the title, but let's try it. Six, what's the B? What's the U? What's the I? Internal enemies of contagious Christianity. Everybody say six big, ugly, internal enemies of contagious Christianity. You see, the devil definitely is our enemy, right? How many of you know the devil wants to keep you from being what God wants you to be or what he says you are, right? What did Jesus say in John 10, 10? He said, the thief comes, but for to steal, kill, and destroy. But I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Sure, the devil is our enemy. 
He's our number one enemy. He's trying to rob, steal, and keep us from being what God says we are. But let me tell you something today. I'm a firm believer that we do the devil a big favor most of the time. And the biggest enemy we have when it comes to being a contagious Christian is us. With that in mind, let me share with you, everybody say it, six big, ugly, internal enemies. Enemy number one is this, complacent Christianity. Complacent Christianity. The word complacent means to be smug and uncritical and have an uncritical satisfaction with oneself or one's achievements. In other words, man, I got it all figured out. I'm in cruise control, if you will. I have arrived. I'm just doing fine. I'm on autopilot. And uh, we got, uh, Robert's not here. There, you know, you know what autopilot is. You just get it all set up and you just kick back and relax. That's the way a lot of people are. I don't know if many of you watch Jimmy Evans. He's the kind of the marriage guru. Everybody, Jimmy Evans. He talks about relationships. He said a lot of marriages, uh, they're not doing bad, but they're just on autopilot. They're just kind of complacent, just rocking along and rolling along. In fact, uh, uh, on Valentine's Day, Beverly and I were kind of complacent. We just piddling around. And in fact, our friends Sonny and Susan went to Jimmy Evans' conference in Dallas, and they were sending us pictures of them smooching and stuff. And I told Beverly, I said, they're just showing off. <laughs> and I sent him a text. I said, Beverly and I are just sitting here by the fire. And he said, well, Jimmy Evans calls that being on autopilot. So Beverly and I jumped in the convertible. Things started heating up right there. We went to Sonic and got a big cup of whatever. And then we took, we took a selfie while we were smooching and sent it, sent it to Sonny and Susan and said, we ain't on autopilot. But how many of you know a lot of times our Christianity gets on autopilot and we become what? complacent, smug almost. Hey, I don't need your help. I don't need the church. I can do it my way. Well, the Bible says this in Amos 6.1, and the prophet said, woe unto those. Everybody go, woe unto those. Woe to those who are at ease in Zion. Everybody say, woe unto those. Come on, y'all are, y'all are complacent already this morning. Come on. Everybody say, woe unto those. Now, turn to Revelation. Let me show you this. We're going to hang out there a little bit. The church the church has some issues at the end of days, and Jesus writes letters to the churches. The last letter he wrote, or the last church he referenced, is the lukewarm church in chapter 3, verse 14. And by the way, though all the churches had issues, all the churches had things that, that Jesus commended them for. He commended the churches. He says, you did this, you did good, you and this and that, and all these churches. But then the lukewarm church, he didn't have one thing good to say about them. Man, I don't want to come to the close of my days and God not have anything good to say about me. But let me tell you, when we become lukewarm and complacent, that we're good for nothing, just like Jesus said concerning salt and light. Let me look at it with you quickly, uh, because there's a lot i got to say today. It's the church in Laodicea. It says, these things says the amen, the faithful and the true witness. At the beginning of creation, I know your works, that you're neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then, because you are lukewarm, everybody say lukewarm. Lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will what? Oh, now some of you King James folks have spew. 
Mine, the new King James, I think it's a little better. It says vomit. Everybody say vomit. Jesus said, because you're lukewarm, I'm going to what? Vomit you out of my mouth. Now, just quickly, let me just tell you about this, this, this place, uh, the city uh, of the uh, Laodiceans. They were the lukewarm church. It says, I wish you were cold or hot. Now, that's not a reference to good or bad. You know, we think hot, man, that's the way all Christians need to be hot. But, oh, you don't want to be a cold Christian. That's not what he's referencing. It's actually a, a, an illustration about some communities that were close to this, to this village. The one, I can't even pronounce the name of it, but they were known for their hot springs. Anybody been to hot springs? Ooh, I've been to Aguas Calientes. Everybody say Aguas Calientes. I'm telling you, they got hot springs there, and they're very medicinal value. I stayed, I laid out in the hot spring. They refilled the swimming pool when we were there years ago, and I just let hot water, oh, it's just wonderful. It's marvelous. Has anybody ever experienced the joy of the hot springs? Woo! Okay, that was a town close to, to Laodicea. Now, across the other way, there was another town that was known for its cold spring. And a cold, uh, how many of you appreciate a good cold glass of water? Whoo, amen. And so he's not saying good and bad. He, both are great. In fact, Beverly, what's the place in Oklahoma with the cold spring? What now? Turn, not Turner Falls, but Sulphur, Oklahoma. Anybody been to that place? You, it, it, you can be 110 outside and you walk into that water and you go, oh, it's cold in here. I mean, it is cold spring. You just need to go. We, we ought to all just somebody jump in the car and go and try to, try to get in there one day. How many of you do that? It doesn't take long. We'll just all have a group trip. We're going to go up one day and get in that cold spring and just prove it to Pastor Sam. It's cold in there. We'll do that. Well, uh, let's plan it. We're going to have a day trip to go up there and get in the cold water and it, you won't take long. It won't take you long. I mean, so then we can have lunch and come home. We'll do that. Uh, but but that's, uh, that's, that's marvelous. So he's not saying good or bad. He's saying, you know what you folks are like? You're between the two. You're lukewarm. You're complacent. And because of that, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. And he said, because you say I'm rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing... I'm in cruise control. I'm on, I'm on autopilot. He said, don't you know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked? Then he goes on to tell them some things they need to do. And then he says, hey, I, I'm standing at the door knocking. Most people think he's talking about lost people, that he's knocking on lost people's hearts. You know what Jesus is really doing today? He's knocking on the hearts of a complacent Christian, asking them to open the door and allow him into their life again and cause them to begin to revitalize their Christian life and become effective. You see, the hot springs were effective. The cold springs were effective. The lukewarm nature of this city was of no value. Complacent Christianity. If you want to undermine the contagious nature of your walk with God, become complacent in your walk with God. Number two, the second uh, big, everybody say big, ugly, internal enemy. Come on, say it. Big, ugly, internal enemy of, of, of uh, contagious Christianity is not only complacent Christianity, but compromising Christianity. People who compromise. To compromise means to accept a lower standard. To lower the bar. 
And oh man, people all over the world. I have met so many Christians who have compromised their walk with God. In fact, if you look in chapter 2, uh, verse 12, you'll see the church in Pergamos. They were a compromised church. They had accepted a much lower standard. It says this. He says, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. Speaking of his, the, word, the power of the word of God. I know your works where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith uh, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have, see they did, they weren't all bad, but look right here, they'd compromised. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The doctrine of the Nicolaitans. Now, this church had compromised their walk with God by allowing false doctrine into their world. Now, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans basically is this. It was based on the mercy of God. They, they embraced the mercy of God, but you know what they threw out? They threw out the need to, for repentance and the fact, hey, it's God's mercy. I, I'm saved because of His mercy, and therefore, I have, because of His mercy, I have freedom to sin. I can do whatever I want to. God's law is no longer binding in my life. I've got all this liberty to do whatever I want because God's mercy. And God looked down and He said, I hate that. You have undermined the foundation and the core of what it means to be a Christian. You compromise the gospel by, by not applying the Word of God, not yielding to the Word of God in your life, by listening to another voice and to another message. You know, gosh, and did you know the doctrine of the Nicolaitans is running rampant through our world today? I saw, I didn't see the actual interview, but... Uh, former pastor by the name of Rob Bell, who was the former pastor of Mars Hill Church. It's a, it was a big mega church. And, you know, a number of years ago, he started writing books, and I was going, uh-oh, something's wrong there. He wrote one book, I forget the name of it, and began to uh, 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 kind of teach that everybody's saved already. He just loves everybody, and everybody's already saved. I went, uh-oh, everybody's not saved. And just recently, he got on Oprah. You know, when Oprah invites you on, it's either because she wants to embrace your doctrine or refute your doctrine. And, and he got on Oprah, and here's what he said. He's in reference to the church. He said, the church will, quote, continue to be more irrelevant if it continues to cite the Bible's prohibitions on homosexual behavior. He said this, I think culture is already there and the church will continue to be more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. You know what he said? The church is going to become irrelevant if they keep following the dictates of God's word in their life. I don't know if Rob knows it or not, but I've nominated him as the new pastor of the church of the Nicolaitans. And I'm going to nominate, maybe I'll send him a letter. Oprah can be his uh, associate. Because I'm telling you something today, that, is a, uh, that has watered down to nothing the power of the gospel. And as we've learned and as we'll learn, hey, they, they have a form of godliness, but they're denying the power thereof. 
And so it's the compromising church. Uh, hey, if you wanna, if you wanna undermine the contagious nature of your, of your, uh, uh, walk with God, begin to compromise this word in your life and you will become ineffective and good for nothing but to be trampled underfoot by men. And some preacher in some little town will start calling your name from the pulpit like I did today. I don't do that much, but when I hear some things, I just go, son, somebody need, if you got any Rob Bell books, throw them back, throw them in trash, send them back to him, say, no thanks. I'm not a member of the Nicolaitan church. Amen. It's a compromising Christianity. Number three, hey, and here's one that a lot of us do. Follow with me. It's a, it's a compartmental type of Christianity. Now, there's nothing wrong with being compartmentalized. I think that's a good thing in some ways. But I'm talking about your walk with God. I'm talking about who's in charge of your life. And, and to be, to compartmentalize your life is divided into sections or categories. Now, I'm speaking about our world and how we tend to be compartmental with our walk with God. Oh, Sunday morning. Uh oh, there's a compartment. I'm going to worship the Lord. I'm going to be a Christian on Sunday. Oh, but oh gosh, on Friday, what am I? What Friday night? What was I? And all these little compartments of our life, and we get all compartmentalized, and we began to serve other gods. What was the first commandment? Thou shalt have what? No other gods before me. In fact, he wasn't saying I'm the number one God of all your gods. He said I am the only God. And so you need to understand that this world is filled with all kinds of idols in our life that we can worship. We worship some days at the altar of finance. And we worship our money and our resources. We worship, hey, let me just tell you something. I don't want to pop anybody's bubble. And I love my family. Everybody say, whoo, pastor loves his family. Whoo, in fact, we found out the name of baby T3. It's uh, Mar Mabry Ruth. Everybody say, hi, Mabry. Now, I'm going to love, I already love Mabry Ruth, but I will not worship her. Some of you worship your family or your spouse. They are not God. It got so quiet in here, we may have to play cards or something here. Your fa Listen, the, we, we worship at the we worship our family. You can't worship your family. You love your family. You tend to your family. You bless your family. But God is the one who we worship. And we get all compartmentalized in our life. And we begin to uh, have other gods that take the place of God. And he said, now wait, I got God over here. He says, no, you got, hey, you got me in there with all the other gods. There should be no other gods before me. I'm the only one God. If you want to become ineffective in your walk with Christ, start serving other gods. If you want to become impacting in your life, let's start identifying the other gods that we worship and begin to dethrone them in our life. In fact, in Revelation 2, the church in Thyatira, they, in verse 18... It says, these things says the Son of God, who has his eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. I know your works. Now, and now this, this almost sounds a little compartmentalized. He says, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, your patience. As for your works, the last are more than the first. Everybody say, hallelujah. 
Nevertheless, now that's what you'd never want to hear, but most of the time we do. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allow the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation unless they repent of their Deeds. Let me just tell you, the whole, did you know already God has cast immorality into the sick bed? What is one of the some biggest issues of the, of the world? It's, it's sexually transmitted diseases. It's a byproduct of immorality. And let me just say, I am befuddled. Maybe I shouldn't be. I am befuddled by, by Christianity that has so compartmentalized their life. They come and lift their hands on Sunday morning, worship and give, and worship God, and then worship immorality all the rest of the week. And have almost called sexual immorality is, it's okay. God understands. No, He doesn't understand. It's so quiet in here. You were reading at the end of the book, by the way. This is not something that happened years and years ago. It's always been happening, but understand something. It's the corrupt church that, that they have compartmentalized their life. You know what Jesus said? The greatest commandment in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37. He said, let me tell you, the greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And the second is just as important. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, there's no other gods. You love me with everything in your being. Don't put me in a box. Look at your neighbor and say, don't put God in a box. You know what you'll end up with? If you put God in a box, you know what you'll end up with? Nobody's afraid to just holler it out. A box. Because he won't, he won't hang around in your box. All right? It's compartmentalized compartmental Christianity. Let me give you another. Here's one, and we'll just go quickly through it. It's contrived Christianity, and that's kind of a conflict of terms because the word contrived means created in a way that is artificial and unrealistic. But here's what, here's what you need to understand, that a lot of people who think they're going to heaven are not going to heaven. They got an artificial or an unrealistic understanding of what it takes to get to heaven. They've missed the most important part. In fact, years ago, Billy Graham said this. He said, I fear that a large percentage of people who are in churches today in evangelical America are going to split hell wide open one day if they don't get saved. They think that because they do this or do that, they're born again. Listen, there's only one way to heaven, and it's through Jesus Christ. Through yielding to his governance and leadership in your life and trusting him and in believing that he's the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings and to know that he died for you on Calvary's cross, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb and three days later he rose from the dead and you give your life to him and he becomes the Lord and the leader of your life. Jesus said this, if you go over to Matthew 7 at the close of the Sermon on the Mount, he says this about people who will come to him on that day. He says this, uh, not everyone, Verse 21, who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. 
Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Everybody say, never knew you. Now, some people use this as a way to, uh, to, to validate that you can lose your salvation. Let me just say this. You can believe what you want. I'm never going to lose mine. But hey, he doesn't say that these people really did cast out demons and really did uh, do miracles and wonders. It says they said they did. And Jesus said, I never knew you. If he never knew you, you were never saved in the first place. He said, depart from me, I never knew you. Listen, could, I, could it be the case today that there are people sitting in this room about half filled and because you walked an aisle somewhere sometime and filled out a card, somebody said, welcome into the family of the Lord. But you knew on the inside it didn't mean much. But you kind of think, well, I guess I'm saved. Listen, when you're saved, you know it, my friend. You belong to him. There's a new sheriff in town. Amen? Could it be today that there's some people here who have been walking in an unrealistic or an artificial sense? You're kind of knock on wood. I hope I'm saved. I think I'm saved. My mama said I was saved. My, you know, somebody said, you know, my daddy was, was a good man. And you think, listen, you got to be born again. Amen? Contrived Christianity will certainly keep you from being contagious. How many of you know the world can spot a fake a hundred miles out? And then number five, listen carefully. I might go a little past 12. How many of you have mercy on me? It's convalescent Christianity. Let me explain convalescent Christianity to you. My wife has been going through therapy. You know she broke her shoulder. Where's Michelle? She's gone. Have you been doing any therapy? You got a cast on. I don't know if the, you know, it takes, it takes time. Beverly had to do all these exercises. And, and, and that's good. You got to do that. To convalesce means to, uh, a recovery from an illness or an operation or an accident. It's a recovery process. How many of you know recovery is so important? You've got to recover. But let me tell you, and, and you know what? Recovery is important in the church. When, anybody ever been traumatized? Anybody ever been vandalized? Anybody ever been victimized? You, you, people take it and hurts and wounds and pains in your life, and you need to recover from that. Hey, when you lose loved ones that are dear to you, there's a recovery process. Am I right? And nobody denies the need for recovery. My wife, she, I'm telling you, she would. I got used to it. They'd send her home with things to exercise with, and the little uh, straps would get stronger. And and the, when it first started happening, I'd get scared every day because I'd hear in there go, "Oh!" I'd run in there. You okay? I'm just doing these exercises. I'm going, God, you're making me nervous. Now she can scream bloody murder. I just don't even pay attention anymore. It's just. I just know she's, conval- she's convalescing. And, and, her, and her therapist told her, hey, you may, you may be done. Come back in one more week. We may graduate you. You may be fully, you may be fully recovered. And that's the, that's the whole idea, right? But you know what we find in the church? People who never recover. They're professional recovery addicts. 
They get traumatized and they get, they, they go into therapy, but I, I don't know, they're doing all the, you know, my wife had certain specific exercises that she had to do in order for that particular area of her life to get healed. And you know, it wouldn't have done her any good to go walking. I mean, other than to help her with her, you know, everyday health, but it wouldn't help her recovery any if she just went walking and didn't do all these weird, bizarre exercises to keep her shoulder moving and working efficiently. And, and evidently, there's people, I've just met them pastorally, I cannot just talk for a minute, who they come to you and they said, man, I'm all, I, you know, I got, I'm, I got, I need to be healed. I got issues. Anybody here ever had issues? I have had issues. Anybody ever? had issues. Let me just tell you something. It's okay. Everybody say it's okay. But the goal is to get over it at some point in life. I'm tending to want, you know, this is where if I'm not careful, I'll be uncaring. You know, just say get over it. Okay. I won't do that. But at some point, We've got to get over it and get through it and begin to get healed up, amen? How many of you know God's a God of healing? Now, I want you to hear, I got just a little bit. Turn to Hebrews. I, everybody needs to go there. Everybody needs to go there. Go to Hebrews chapter 12. I want to show you this. Come on, I need to hear those, those phones coming on and the, the, the pages turning. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. How many of you know this is instruction? And make straight paths for your feet, so that which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be what? How many of you know healing is a cooperative effort on our part? And here we see the writer of Hebrews say, okay, let me just explain something to you. If you got issues, now let me just back up. Anybody here ever had issues say, you're talking to me, pastor. Everybody's had issues. Everybody's been, everybody has at some point sung the somebody done me wrong song. I understand that. In fact, this pastor has had issues. But one thing I don't want to do is not walk through this process and be healed. He said, okay, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight paths for your feet so that which is lame may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. Everybody say, be healed. Now, it's not God's will for us to always be in the middle of some kind of recovery process and never get over it. The goal is to get healed. Tell somebody next to you. The goal is to get healed. Now, let me throw this out. It's just a thought because here's what Jesus came to say. In fact, Luke chapter 4, I think, when he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. You remember that? He picked up the scrolls and he, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to set at liberty the captive, heal the brokenhearted, and, 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 and it's just a total revamping of our life and a healing in our life. Did you know Jesus came to heal us? He came to help. He was hung up for our hang-ups. Come on, everybody say it like a Pentecostal preacher. Say, he was hung up for our hang-ups. There's power in the blood. There's healing in the, in the name of Jesus. There is, there's recovery available. So, with that in mind, if you're not getting healed, 
There's either something you're doing wrong or something you're not doing. And so whatever you're doing that's not working, how's that working for you? Can we talk a second? Because if, if, if nothing's getting better, if you're, just, if you're still just hobbling along, singing a somebody done me wrong song, how long are you going to do that? Come on. But rather, the Hebrew writer said, it's time that you start strengthening those hands that hang down. You see, Beverly had to do certain... Hey, if you've got heart issues, if somebody's hurt you and pains you, you need special areas of recovery in the heart. If you got a bad attitude, you need to start dealing with a bad, bad attitude and say, hey, I'm getting ready to get me a good attitude. I'm changing the way I'm thinking about this. Come on, you got to get proactive. What if you're doing something that ain't working? Maybe you need to do something else. And if you would like a little helpful hints or two, I can throw a few out. Let the Word of God begin to take residence in your life like never before. And begin to wash your brain and wash your soul and wash your mind and begin to get some good old intestinal fortitude on the inside of her and do like Popeye. What did Popeye say? Oh, y'all are pathetic, Popeye. Popeye said, I've had all I can stand and I can't stand this no more. I found a lot of people, they're not sick and tired of being sick and tired. In fact, what they want you to do is get sick and tired with them. And let me just tell you, uh, hey, let me be honest with you. That doesn't help your contagious nature at all. Convalescent Christianity. Hey, if lost people look at that and say, man, you've been limping for five years. And you want me to follow your Jesus? I know I'm a little tough. And I understand, hey, recovery, I started this off. Don't forget, I said, recovery is real. We got to get healed. But don't be a professional recovery addict. I found a lot of recovery groups, all they are is a bunch of people sitting around talking about how bad it is. One person, man, it's bad. And you tell their story, and the next guy, that ain't nothing, brother. They one-up each other on how bad it is. time you leave that group, you're going, oh, Jesus, there ain't no help for anybody in this world. That didn't do me any good. He said, hey, don't stay lame. Get healed. Oh, I saved the best one for last. It's not, hey, and let me just say one more. The last big, come on, say it with me. Big, ugly, internal enemy is what I call cranky Christianity. In fact, that's a conflict of terms in my book. I don't believe you can be a real Christian and stay cranky. Now, every once in a while, I've been a little cranky. In fact, as I get older, I can be crankier, but I'm trying. Hey, hey, the way he started the Sermon on the Mount, happy, happy, happy. Everybody say happy, happy, happy. But I've found there's a lot of people that are cranky Christians. And as you know, they look like they've been what? They are no fun to God or anybody. You don't want to go eat with these people for sure. Maybe if they're buying, but... 
Usually, I'd pay not to go. Now, to be cranky is ill-tempered and irritable. There's people in the kingdom, it's just their tendency. They're always, they're always cranky. They're always got a, they're sporting a toot about something. They all got, they all got something to gripe about. It's getting real quiet in here. There may be a few cranky Christians in the house this morning. They don't like how the pastor lambasts them from the pulpit. They don't like this. They don't like that. And once they get through this, they got to find something else to, to argue or fuss about. They're always cranky. they got a problem about with everybody. You know anybody like that? I know I'm not talking to you. I know this doesn't apply to you. You know anybody? You ever met anybody like that? And then they say they're Christians. They're all puckered up and mad. You know, oh man, that just makes me want to get saved. You know, when people got a problem with everybody, it's called the Bob principle. If Bob's got a problem with everybody, anybody ever met Bob? I hope there's not any Bobs there. I'm not talking to you. He's got a problem with everybody. Here's the Bob principle. If Bob's got a problem with everybody, come on, light, come on. Bob's probably the problem. Hello. Ill-tempered and irritated. Now, one more passage I want you to turn to. I'm about done. Ephesians 4, 31, 32. Ephesians 4, 31, 32. I had a little mini rev. I'm going to show you my little mini rev. Anybody know what a mini rev is? A little mini revelation. About this passage. Now, you gotta under, you gotta follow me here. Fo- follow me. Stay with me. Look at your neighbor. Say, stay with him. I know it's twelve, but stay with him, man. He's about done. I'm going to show you a little mini rev. Here it is. Peter said, "Let all." Everybody say, "All." Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you. Everybody say, "Put away." Put away from you with all malice. Everybody say, put it away. And be kind to one another. You know, you don't have to go to cemetery. I mean seminary to get this. You don't even have to go to counseling to get this. Now, I I believe in counseling, but this, Paul's just saying, okay, all that puke, all that anger, all that crankiness, put it away. Everybody say, put it away. We'll come back to that. And then, oh, when you put it away... Be kind to somebody. What a thought. I'm going to be kind. Never thought about that before. Tender hearted. Now that's a stretch. Forgiving one another. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Everybody say put away. The phrase put away. Here's my little mini rev. Put away. The, the phrase is to weigh anchor. You know what it means to weigh anchor? Pull up the anchor and set sail. Here's what Paul said. All that anger, all that bitterness, all that wrath, all that clamor and evil speaking, all that malice, pull up the anchor and let it sail away. Now, let me ask you this question. What has got you anchored in your cranky attitude. 
Because somewhere, something, somebody, some issue came along and you began to get anchored into this mindset. And you're a victim. And you're bitter. You're mad. And you can't keep your tongue to yourself because it's so ah. What is it? I'm going to go where it was. I'm pulling up anchor. Whatever that anchor is, I'm putting it in the boat with this bitterness and this wrath and this anger. And you know what I'm going to be today? I'm going to be tender hearted. I'm going to be forgiving because this stuff's sailing away. I'm going to be kind to people. I'm not going to be a cranky Christian. Cranky Christians certainly are not contagious. Unless you're talking to other cranky Christians. You know birds of a feather do flock together. They sit around and they get cranky with one another and they build up these big offenses when really they needed to be going, where's the anchor? What was it? It's got, it's, it's down in there somewhere. It's coming out. How many of you want to be contagious Christians? You've got to deal with these things. We've got to deal with our complacency. We've got to deal with our compromise. We've got to deal with our compartmentalization of our life and all these false gods we tend to deal with. Some of us may need to deal with the, the contrived Christianity and come to the realization that we need to be born again. Some people here, you've been in recovery all your life, known life. It's time to move through this process and begin to, begin to tap into the healing power of God and begin to do whatever it takes to get through this process and come out on the other side healed. Some of us need to deal with our ill attitudes that we tend to bleed off on everybody else because we got some anchor in our life that's weighing us down, some hurt or pain, some, something that happened. I'm done except for the altar call. I got a text today from Ron Hammonds. And if y'all let me, I'll just be obedient to him. He said, let, let there be a don't miss a chance for a good altar call in your service today. Now, I don't know what's going on in your world, but I'm telling you there's something supernatural about the altar. And in just a moment, we're going to open the altar. And if you're here today and any one of these issues that, that tend to big ugly, and they are ugly, aren't they? Jesus looked at complacency. He said, That's bad. That's nasty. That's a ill, cranky attitude. It's ugly. Compromise is ugly. Big, ugly inner enemies. All of us battle these things. So let's stand up together in this altar this morning.